0: We're in chapter 2 in our study of the book of James. Um, I'd like to pick up again on verse 8. We started that last week, but didn't get it finished, so I'm going to start there again. The theme of this section, this paragraph, starts with verse 1 and goes through verse 13. The theme, and we're translating that Greek term partiality, but um Remember, just a quick review. I know you know this, but it's always important to review this. James is explaining to us what the justified life looks like. He does not explain how you get justified or we may say how you get saved. He's assuming that people that are his readers have already put that faith and trust in the Lord. They are Jews. You know that from verse one of chapter one, 12 tribes scattered abroad. And this issue of partiality would be an important one an issue for the Jewish people particularly uh, because they were convinced they were the chosen people and they are, but also this whole idea of both partiality in terms of race, of ethnic background, of socioeconomic status and the illustration that James uses are socioeconomic. As he says, rich man comes into your synagogue and a poor man comes in, dressed in shabby clothes. How are you going to treat that? And then, In verse 5 through um, uh, verse uh, 7, really, he contrasts how we respond to people and how God responds to people by asking four rhetorical questions. And then, where I want to pick up, verse 8, he now floats some principles using language of the Old Testament. Now, remember, James is writing to Jews, 12 tribes scattered across 4, written about A.D. 45 or so, very early, probably the first epistle written of the New Testament. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Now, he's quoting, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, from a fairly well-quoted Old Testament text throughout the Bible, Leviticus 19.18, when Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment by the Pharisees as response as you love God your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbors yourself. So James is doing exactly the same thing his brother did. But did you
1: notice what he called it? The royal wall. Now that's that's really interesting because he's
0: using Vasilekos, vasilekos is a term in Greek, but he's using a term that associates his brother Jesus as king king of the Jews, and this is his royal law. <clears throat> so it's it's a fascinating play on lots of different words for the Jewish people that are reading this who have become Christians, that the royal law is the law of love. The law of our king, Jesus, is love your neighbor as yourself. If you follow that, you're doing well. And he continues, but if you show partiality, and we've talked about that, find that, in the last two weeks, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And this is strong language, but he's using that term partiality, which is the antithesis of love. To discriminate, to treat people differently based on their race or I think background or socioeconomic (laughs) status or whatever, is partiality. You're not treating them, seeing them as God sees them. He says you're committing a sin and are convicted. And that the term convicted there is a, it's a legal term, but it's a term that would be used like a witness against you. That you are discriminating and showing partiality. You are committing a sin and the law is a witness against you. So the when the trial, he kind of envisions what he's trying to say. and a trial that is held, the law would be the evidence that stands against you. It would be a witness against you. What law? Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbors yourself. This is one of those really important principles of, of, of the Bible, is the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? Continuity between the two. Sometimes we make them diametrically opposed. We shouldn't do that. Jesus fulfilled the law, but the moral law of God, which is reflected in the Old Testament law, continues in the New Testament. The Old Covenant moral law continues in the New Covenant moral law, and that's what James is saying here. But he's using the language of the Old Testament to help convince these new Jewish Christians that they still have an obligation when it comes to the moral law of God. And the one he's focusing on is love the neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on, verse 10, for explains now, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And again, that word accountable is a legal term. You could maybe translate that as liable for all of it. Let's think about that for just a moment. Again, I've said this thing three times already so far this hour, that James is writing to Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ, and he's using the language of the Old Testament to help them understand their duties and obligations under the New Covenant. And he says, he reminds us of something. And every Jew understood this, whether or not it affected their behavior is another question. The law is an organic whole. If I use that phrase, do you not know what I mean by that? It's an organic whole. Everything hangs together. You can't say, well, I will choose to obey this, but not choose to obey this. I just use a ridiculous example. I'll choose to obey the first four commandments, but I'm going to kill my neighbor, and I'm going to commit adultery with his wife, and all those things. You can't do that. It's an organic whole. It's integrated together. So if you violate one commandment, You are accountable. You are liable. It's a legal term. You're liable for all of it. And so he's just, he's reminding them of something that they knew that the law is an organic, interconnected whole. You can't pick and choose what you're going to obey. Pick and choose what you're going to follow. And as he takes this into the New Testament, the royal law of love, and you see that all over the the New Testament, Jesus Christ said, they will know you're my disciple as they see you love one another. Paul writes that marvelous chapter, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. So love is central, but he's he's connecting the two, the old and the new. He continues to explain this in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, that's the seventh commandment, also said, do not murder, that's the sixth commandment, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now that that verse is not hard to understand. He's just illustrating what he just said. The law is an integrated organic whole. You can't pick and choose. God gave us the sixth, the seventh commandment, doesn't give you the freedom to violate the sixth commandment. You follow both commandments. So illustrating what he's the point he's making. So Speak. i in verse 12 now. So speak and act as though who so are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now you probably you're probably maybe to yourself, maybe not, but maybe you're saying, "Hold on, I'm getting confused." He spoke of the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now he speaks of the law of liberty. How are those two connected?
1: Well, let's think about that. That was a good rhetorical question, wasn't it? So, speak and act as those who would be judged under the law of liberty.
0: So, judged or held accountable under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? Well, John eight thirty two. It's one of my favorite verses in 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 the New Testament Jesus said if the son shall make you free you shall be free indeed so the freedom that he's talking about James is talking about in this law of liberty is the freedom that comes from Jesus but he's talking about the law here and the law of liberty is the, listen very carefully to this. Is the law, the moral law of God, as interpreted by Jesus?
1: Where do you see Jesus' interpretation of the law?
2: In the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Are you with me?
0: I mean, you are tracking with me here? This is, this is what in-depth Bible study is all about, to go through each verse and connect them so that you get the main message. So the law of liberty is the moral law of God,
1: interpreted by Jesus. And I'm going to add, empowered by the Holy Spirit.
0: Because now, and this is a major thesis of Paul, we saw that in Galatians, and in chapter 6, stand fast in your liberty, don't move. And then Paul develops that extensively in the book of Romans as well. So God will evaluate our lives, not for purposes of where we're gonna spend eternity, but for purposes of how we've lived our lives since we put our faith in him, 2
1: Corinthians 5:10, based on the royal law of all liberty. The moral law is interpreted by Jesus and the power by the Holy Spirit.
0: And as you delve into that in depth, you begin to understand that God is interested not just in our outward acts, but our inward motivations. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. You, you, you've heard me illustrate it this way. Jesus would say, it's an illustration. You've heard it said you shall not commit murder. It's a premeditated murder word in, in the original language. But I say unto you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you, you're guilty. That's a whole new interpretation of the law, the sixth commandment. He is say takes the seventh commandment, uh, that you should not commit adultery. You've heard it said that. What well, I say to you, if you look at the woman, lust in your heart, you you committed it. It's a whole new interpretation. But the law of liberty, then, if I am to hold to that standard, I need additional enablement and power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So what the New Covenant does, is the New Covenant does not erase the moral law of God. The New Covenant helps us to understand the depths of the moral law of God and how we can be enabled and empowered to obey the moral law of God. And Paul calls it the law of liberty. James calls it the law of liberty, the law that frees us. And listen, in some ways, for a Jewish person in the first century, that sounds like an oxymoron to speak of the law of liberty. Because the law to them was like a binding thing. It was like a, almost like a burden to them. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not to be a burden. It's freeing because now you're free to live in loving obedience with me, free to accomplish all that I have for you. And it's, as the Old Testament Jew was to walk in loving obedience with the Lord according to the law, the ceremonial law enabled them to do that, get atoned for their sin, the moral law of God helped them to know how they walk with God and what it looks like. The New Covenant is saying the moral law of God still obtains in your life. Jesus helps you to understand the depth of its application, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to accomplish what the law of liberty wants you to accomplish. So if if you follow, I'm trying to explain this. If you follow what James is saying, is, this is really marvelous. And for a Jewish person, you know, about 45 AD when this was written, the first readers would be some of those Jewish Christians to read this. It would be like opening up their minds and their hearts to a new understanding of the moral law of God. The new covenant does, abrog- does not abrogate that the New Covenant fulfills and enables you to do what the Old Testament saint had great difficulty in doing. And of course, that's all explained by grace.
2: Jim, were there any uh, Jews that kept all of the laws? Not the ones that the Pharisees added?
0: No. No.
2: No Jew kept
0: the law perfectly.
2: None. And that's why... What would you expect...
0: But see, see—that's the importance, though. That's the importance of that's the moral law, of God, of the ceremonial law, because the ceremonial law enabled you, enabled God to atone for your transgressions. I'm using that important uh, word for sin, but enabled God to atone for those transgressions, so that you could walk with Him. Is there forgiveness in the Old, De- Old Testament law? Of course. Is there grace and mercy in the Old
1: Testament law? Of course. Is, is there the love of God in the Old Testament? Of course. But let's be brutally
0: honest with one another. Aren't you glad you were born beside the cross? No, I'm serious. Peggy and I often say that. When, you, when you're studying the Old Testament, and you're, oh, my, I'm so glad we're born beside the cross. I mean it, you see wonderful illustrations in the Old Testament, and actually in the, in the, in the New Testament before Jesus goes to the cross, you see marvelous examples of people who really understood all this, understood how the ceremonial law and all that the sacrifices and all that enabled God to atone for sin, and that in and itself was freeing. And then that enabling you to walk in love and obedience with the Lord. But when you stumble and fall, the atoning work that God accomplishes through the sacrifices, you understand how all that works together. Hannah, I love Hannah, her song in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. She really understood the law. That's Samuel's mother. When you, even you read, because remember, this this is before Jesus' death on the cross. You read Mary. Her song in, 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 in the early part of Luke, or you read her, her cousin Elizabeth, you read what they wrote. Those ladies really understood the law. They understood how this worked. And, of course, David, despite all of his foibles and stumblings and the things he did with Bathsheba, he understood the law. You read that in his songs. He really understood how this worked. So no one was perfect in terms of keeping the law perf- perfectly, 100% of the time. But they understood that God dealt with that transgression through the ceremonial law, which is a marvelous, marvelous way to understand how the Old Testament works. So,
2: so the Jews that go to the synagogue, um, are they going there with this understanding that they have sin and that they are, there to have their sins forgiven by some form
0: of repentance yes now let me make sure you uh this is clear a jewish person that would go to the synagogue does not go to the synagogue to offer sacrifices the synagogue was one thing only a teaching place that's all that occurred at the synagogue. There was no sacrificial system. There are no priests there taking them. And that's done at the temple, of course, as you know. So you would go to synagogue to hear the law read and interpreted by the rabbi taught, teaching you. They were usually Levite. But you, you, uh, your, your main point of your question is you would, you would hear that. You would understand it. You would repent. That call to repentance, that is usually a part of the law. But in terms of the sacrifice, that's how God, you understand, and that's how God covered your sin, atoned for your sin. And the, the wonder of what Jesus did, it's the key phrase in the book of Hebrews, a once-for-all
2: sacrifice, once-for-all. So the repentance is from the heart of the Jew that's attending that synagogue during that service,
1: they were repent. Yes, yes.
3: Uh, Dr. Ekman, I have a question. John Nelson, yes. can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, it, it seems to me that James' use of the word here when he says, judged by the law that gives freedom. Um, I understand what you're saying and, that, and how we interpret that now, but do you think the Jews reading the letter? The Christian Jews would have been interpreted that way, wouldn't they? Have thought in terms of if I obey the law, in all respects, then I'm going to be free. I'm not going to be judged. Um, I, I, I just have that question about that when I read that, because he goes on to say, you know, uh, you'll get judgment without mercy if you don't show mercy to other people. So
0: yes, I want to. Yeah, I want to deal with verse thirteen in just a moment. But, uh, John, that's a very good question. Now, remember something that's really important. The readers and the, the, the people to whom James is writing this epistle are Jewish people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. They see him as their Messiah. They see him as their Savior and so on. And what James does and what the Gospels do and what then Paul does is helps them and also then helps us gentiles understand that the law of liberty is the law that is from jesus christ interpreted by jesus christ that sets us free from sin sets us free from the bondage to sin to enabling us to love and obey god and love and walk with other people which is what he's talking about here in this this section of impartiality so, John, I think your question can, can, be, can be answered in this way. The importance of the Epistle of James is helping them to understand that the freedom they have is not through obeying the law perfectly 100% of the time. The freedom that they have comes through putting their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. He is the epitome, He is the embodiment of the freedom that they will experience only through him, not through the law. So he takes those two words, the law of liberty, which, as I mentioned earlier, sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. And that's the power of what he's arguing here, which I think for the Jewish Christian in the first century, this was a liberating thought for them. This was an amazing transformational thought for them. And it, it did indeed lead so many of them to the freedom. And that's why in those early years, the early martyrs of the church were all Jewish people dying for their faith that they put in Christ. So, I mean, that's a a good question, good observation. I hope I I did a fairly good job trying to explain it, (laughs) putting it together.
3: Good job of explaining it. Other parts of James are are giving them the, the true knowledge here.
0: Exactly. It's it, yeah. it's helping them to understand because he's, you know, he's using so much of his language is the language of the Old Testament. He's using the language of the Old Covenant to explain to them how Jesus has changed all this, and that's that's what's going on here. It's quite powerful. Now let's deal with verse
2: thirty. Yeah. So when they when the Jews see Jesus Christ
1: as Then received the Holy Spirit, they had the power within
2: them through the Holy Spirit to live that... Absolutely. 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 And you see that,
0: of course, he is the epitome of this as an example, but you see that in Paul. Paul was absolutely devoted and committed to the law. The Pharisee and all the stuff he describes in his autobiographical stuff in Philippians. But when he finds that Jesus is a Messiah, he experiences that freedom, and that's why the Romans book is so important in understanding all this in his life. But yeah, absolutely, and it's why. And I mean, I I was in when I was doing my theology degree in seminary and stuff. Two of my closest friends were Jews, a guy from New Jersey and a guy from Chicago, and I'm telling you, both those they were the, they were the most on fire guys I've ever been around. I mean, I, uh, both of them, I, I, I followed what what, the, what, what their, their lives have led and the ministries they have, but I mean, when a Jewish person genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that is really freeing for them. I mean, it is a transformational event, which, of course, it should be, but it is in their life. Because then they understand how everything fits together. I mean, however, all the stuff in the old time, oh my goodness, now I understand it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like, it's, see... Paul talks about that in, in Romans, but there's, there's, like a, there's like a veil put over the Jewish person, where it's so difficult for them to understand it. But once they understand it, that is totally liberating. And I mean, both of these guys, I mean, it was, every day they were so excited about everything because uh-huh. they had they'd become free. And uh, they, they experienced, both of their families disowned them because they put their faith in Christ. Mike's, Mike's prayer, and before she died, she did. Mike's prayer was that his mom would come to know Jesus. And she didn't want anything to do with it. But before she died, she did. So it was really
2: neat. It, it's, it's missing, in,
3: on the Damascus Road, it's missing that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it's, it's implied. It's, it's implied. implied. It's but, but then that helped him immediately see the difference between what he studied oh, so so absolutely. deeply and what, what it was going to mean in the future, that's what it really took me 13 years to sort out, I suppose.
0: That's why these guys, in his early years, these guys were willing to die for this stuff. Yeah. They had no, had no trouble being willing to die for it. And a lot of them did. James is the first martyr in all, except for John, the writer of the Gospel of John, all the apostles were martyrs. Every one of them. And of course, Paul was as well. Would I be able to deal with verse 13 now? I' will be okay? okay if you really want to. Yeah, okay. Now, verse thirteen, when you first read it, catches you off guard a little bit because he could have ended the argument he's making about partiality with verse twelve.
1: Could have stopped there, but he adds something. It's theological. For judgment is without mercy
0: to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now let's, let's take that apart for a moment and let's start with the second sentence first and then go back to what he's talking about in the first part of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a principle. That's an axiom of scripture. Let's, let's put it
1: this way. If God dealt with you both at the judgment seat of Christ, Second
0: Corinthians 5.10, or in your daily walk with him, if God dealt with
1: you only on the basis of his justice, what would happen to you? Without mercy?
0: That's right. Now you don't, don't ask that question. I'm asking you <laughs> if God dealt only with you on the basis of his justice, what would the consequence be? You'd be, like, he'd be but, like a Jew. That'd be it. I mean, you, there, there would be absolutely no hope for you, right? If God dealt with Jim Ekman only on the basis of justice, many, 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 many years ago, I'd have been a smoldering cinder on the carpet. I'm serious. Yeah, amen. But God, God, he said, mercy triumphs over judgment. Christus is the word there. You could translate that justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. God deals with us not only on the basis of his justice, but also on the basis of his mercy. You know, if you study the life of David, there you see that perfectly. David, David should have been struck dead after what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. He should have been struck dead. But Psalm 51, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, is David's prayer. He understood his God. When you read Psalm 32, the same thing. God deals with us, in, and when you understand that, the theology of the cross, because the theology of the cross is God's justice and God's mercy and grace meet in Jesus.
1: Because His justice, the penalty is paid. That's His justice. Somebody has to die
0: for my sin. Because the payment of sin, the price, the penalty, the cost of sin's death—that's the very first thing Scripture says: "The day you eat of the tree of knowledge, of good and good, the day you shall die. You transgress my law, you die." So someone in the Old Testament, the Lamb died in your place. It was substitutionary. That blood atoned, covered your sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, his blood atoned once for all for sin. It was substitutionary. But is Jesus that's God's grace and God's mercy in dealing with us. Because it's his grace and mercy that, that, that complements his justice in a perfect way on the cross. That's why we wear crosses around our necks and we put them in our, in our churches and so on, because the cross, although it's a place of execution, is the
1: great example of God's love, grace, mercy, and justice
0: meaning in a space time event of history. And so, therefore,
1: our relationship with people, judgment without mercy, go yeah. on and show no mercy. And that is, that is how he's, what he's arguing, I
0: should not how, but what he's arguing in this paragraph. As God has shown
1: mercy to you, not just justice, that's how you should relate to people. Demonstrate mercy and grace to people, because that's how God has acted in your life.
0: And so this becomes, it's it's a heavily theological verse. But it's, it's, it's a prominent message of scripture. You see it immediately in the Garden of Eden. God could have struck Adam and Eve dead. Their, their fellowship with him was affected. They, they would no longer walk with God in the beauty of the garden and all that stuff, but they would continue to live because there was that hope, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, Will come one who will crush the head of the, serpent. That's the problem. We have no idea. That's all we had. We know somehow God's going to deal with all this. But we have no idea what that means until you start reading the rest of scripture. It starts to unfold. And we find out ultimately that seed is Jesus, of course. Well, anyway, so this is a, it's a, it's a fantastic reminder that in the Old Testament saint and the Jewish
1: Christians who are reading this, they're going to really understand this. Because that's what the law is all about.
0: How God's mercy is extended to the Jewish people. He, not, he does not deal with them only on the basis of his justice. He deals with them on the basis of his mercy and grace and love for them. And so, I mean, you, and they, I totally understand that. This is what they would, I got it. James is saying, well, then that's how you should deal with people. And that was always a little hard because they're the chosen people. Why don't they? we call Gentiles dogs? That's how Jewish people in the Old Testament talk about Gentiles. Oh, that stuff's got to stop. It should have stopped anyway, but that stuff's got to stop. You do not show partiality toward people because God doesn't show partiality. His intent is that everyone will hear the message and respond.
1: Okay. I wanted to finish
0: it last week, but this took 35 minutes, so that's why I didn't get finished last week. But yeah, are you with me? I really, more importantly, you're with James. This is a tremendously important chapter.
1: All right. This has to be in the context of who James is speaking to. Yeah, it's very powerful.
0: What I thought we would do, because the next section is verse 14, we've already done this when we were comparing and contrasting, but I thought. If it's all right with you, and actually you've got a business already, I'm just gonna do it. I just like to read it again. Just like to read it again, and just to review it again. If one of the most important tools of learning is review. I didn't hear anybody say amen to that, but uh, I, I think it is. Just a reminder James has two thesis statements that he wants to defend. Thesis statement is. Faith without works is dead. Thesis statement number two, faith without works is the faith of demons. They're the two themes he wants to develop. So, I mean, this, after you, we've been through these first, this first chapter and now into the second chapter. Following our little pinwheel, he's talking about testing temptations, responding to the word of God, impartiality. He now, and I don't know why he does it. He knows, and the Holy Spirit who inspired it knows. But he now takes us on a short bunny trail. Now he gets real theological. He says, "I want to explain something to you," and
1: it was really be an important thing for the Jew because their whole approach to things was what I do is important to God. But what I do that I know is important to God must be based on
0: faith. Because the Jewish person would have known this. They knew the life of Abraham. They knew the life of Moses. They knew the life of Joseph. These were individuals of great faith, and yet these individuals accomplished much for God. So what James wants to do is show how to the Jewish person, they would have understood this, that faith and works are inextricably linked. So he just says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says You could translate that: If someone claims he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one who you says to them, "Go in peace, be warm and filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the Greek word there for dead means useless, inoperative. It's void
1: of all meaning.
0: And so James is saying, you can't separate these two. It's almost like, you know, somebody stands up and says, but someone, this is verse 18 now, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works which is ridiculous. But James is saying, someone's going to stand up an objector, an imaginary objector. Okay, James, you're talking about faith. Okay, you've got that, but I have works. James saying, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's the theme. The two are inextricably linked. You cannot separate. You can't say, well, you, you're a person of faith. I'm a person of doing good works. James says, that's stupid. You can't split them like that. You believe that God is one, and of course, that's Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love him with your written the law and stuff. That's important to that. That's the theological center of Judaism. Deuteronomy 6.4. He's quoting that. You believe God is one, Shema. You do well. But even the demons believe that. And shudder. What's James doing there? The stupidity of separating faith and work. I'm going to guarantee you, I'll go to the wall for this. There's no demon that's an atheist. Satan is not an atheist. They believe in God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the God-man sent to redeem the world. And they shudder. Go back and read the Gospels. How many times the demons show up in somebody's life and tormenting them and they shudder and are scared and terrified that Jesus is there. So the stupidity and the silliness of trying to separate faith and work. Because faith without works, this is the theme he's developed. Faith without works is the faith demons have. You're never going to say demons do good things, righteous things. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He uses two examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled when it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now this this theology here is exactly the theology that's in Romans chapter 4. When Paul brings up Abraham, and he says exactly the same thing, but it's really important that you understand when James is quoting, when he, in verse 23, Scripture was fulfilled, Abraham believed God, not Genesis 15, 6, quoted four times in Romans chapter 4. But Genesis
1: fifteen six is fulfilled in what act of Abraham? when he offered Isaac to the Lord on the altar on Mount Moriah. So, and if you remember we
0: did this, I drew that on the board. Genesis 15, 6 is fulfilled in Genesis 22. What what Abraham did in being willing to offer his son Isaac to the Lord fulfilled what had happened to him in Genesis 15, 6 years earlier. He's justified here. It's fulfilled here. James is showing the linkage between our saving, justifying
1: faith and our saving, justifying works. This reflects this. And that's the theme of this
0: book of James. What does the justified life look like? So this is bridging the Old Testament, New Testament. It's a way to bridge the two. That's correct. And so, I mean, it's just... It, the, the, we've, we've dealt with this before, so I'm reviewing this. But th- this is Galatians three and four, and James two fourteen through the end of the chapter should always be read together
1: because they complement and strengthen one another. Justification is not fire insurance. You understand that metaphor? Justification, not fire insurance. Justification transforms and brings a fulfilled,
0: loving, obedient walks with God, walk with God. Now I can walk in obedience with him because I'm justified. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the power to enable him to do so. And additionally, he says, not only, not only, is he, but he, the other result is he called the friend of God. His act in Genesis 22, which fulfilled Genesis 15, 6, results in, among many other things, he's called a friend of God. There are only a few people in scriptures that are called a friend of God until you get to the New Testament. When in the upper room, Jesus, Jesus Christ says to the guides and disciples, he says, Up until now,
1: I've called you servants, but now I call you friends. Which is an extraordinary statement.
0: Because in the Old Testament, you see Abraham's called a friend, Moses is called a friend.
1: Now, we're friends. God. Which is,
0: I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's exciting. You see that a person is justified by works, I'm in verse 24, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified? Work when she received the messengers and sent them by another way. And I mean, I, I, if you remember, when we went through this. I'll say it again. If I was going to go into the Old Testament and choose an other illustration of how faith is related to what you did, I don't think I'd have chosen Rahab. I, 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 if I were chosen woman, I'd have chosen, I'd have chosen Hannah. She's one of my great heroines of the Old Testament. She's an extraordinary lady, the mother of Samuel. I've chosen her because she was barren in what she did and how she prayed and all that she did in in, in her Lord and devotion to her husband, Elkanah, all that. But he doesn't do that. He chooses Rahab. She's a Canaanite, for goodness sakes. She's a prostitute. Her home of harlotry, her brothel, was on the
1: inner wall of Jericho.
0: But when you, you I know you know this but when you read the account of her in the book of Joshua she heard all the stories about the exodus she heard all the stories about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people during the 40 years of wandering and remember what the text says and she believed the revelation of God of who he is and what he's done she heard it she understood it and she believed and so James said, Of course she had despised Joshua's sin. Of course she defended them because she put her faith in Yahweh Elohim,
1: the God of Israel. Do you remember what happens to Rahab? She and her family are saved, they're not killed.
0: They join, they join with the Jews of the conquest under Joshua. And she marries a Jewish man named Solomon. And you know what? She's in the genealogy of Jesus. She's listed in Matthew's genealogy. I mean, guys, that is, this is an incredible story of mercy triumphing over God's. She was a Canaanite prostitute. God should have wiped her out. But she believed. And God honored that faith, and his mercy and grace produced. A woman in the lineage of Jesus. I don't oh, mind what grace that is. So he chose a good example. He really did.
2: So Jim, we should, when we're, you know, witnessing for Christ, not look at the circumstances that we find a person in that we're witnessing, but realize, like this Martin, like we all were hermits at one time
1: yeah That word, yes, exactly. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it's
0: not up to us to do it. No, we're just faithful with God's Spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's just conclude his argument, which we've studied this. You have a copious notes on it. You could write a thought paper on it for next week if you wish is this is verse 26. Now notice it's an analogy. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Dead orthodoxy has no power. And I mean, this is an axiom of scripture. It's central to the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and here in James's marvelous little epistle. You can't separate faith and works. The transformed life of, quote, works, close quote, is a result of faith. Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead. Human being is a spirit, soul, spirit, body. You can't separate the two. That's that. Faith apart from works is dead. All right. I don't want to start chapter three because it's too convicting. So would that be all right? Can we skip chapter three? Oh, no. no. I, okay. I, online and uh, here. Everybody with me, we can get a quick review of, of, of James 2.14 through 26. But I I hope that's a good review. It's, it's important every now and then to go through that again. But. All right. Well if no questions or comments, I was hoping someone would have a long bummy trail question and I wouldn't have to start chapter three. Oh, I can answer one. <laughs> <laughs> well Bill, go
1: ahead, please. When you're talking about perfect He was asking about a perfect life. Isn't that what they believe about the Dalai Lama? He lives a perfect life. That's right. That's right. Yep.
0: That's right. He's he's the incarnation. He is the incarnation of Buddha. That Tibetan Buddhism as its central theme has that. Yes. He is the incarnation of Buddha. All right. Chapter three, uh, verses one through 12, James returns to something that he had mentioned earlier when he talked at, 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 at the end of, of, of that section we study right before today that, um, so to speak, quit to listen, it's your tongue, the importance of what we say, the importance of our words. He returns to that theme.
1: And he talks about the tongue. But notice
0: how he introduces this. Not many of you
1: should become teachers, my brother. And the, the Greek word there, brothers and
0: sisters, seek to be teachers. Greek word is didaskalos. It's usually used. Paul does it this way: didaskalos, didaskleon is used of the person who teaches sound doctrine. Not many of you should become teachers. Should seek to become teachers. Why?
1: you could translate that because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness
0: ESV has chosen to translate that greater strictness
1: now let's let's take a moment and think about this I'm telling you Not many of you should seek to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. God's going to hold you to a greater level of accountability. Therefore, don't be a teacher. This is really an important sentence, really important verse. Why do you think
0: he begins a discussion about our words, our tongue? The tongue is a metaphor for our word, what we say. Why do you think he begins a pretty lengthy discussion about what we say, the words we use, by talking about teachers? Why do you think he does that?
1: Millstones.
0: Say it again.
2: Millstones.
0: Okay, yeah. Something the Lord Jesus said.
1: Now audience. They have a position of influence. But you you said not many. He didn't say none of you.
0: That's right. So, I mean, I hope some of you, but not many of you. In other words, take very seriously this responsibility of being a teacher because As Spider-Man said in the (laughs) Spider-Man movie, greater responsibility comes greater accountability. I think he said something like that. But Jesus talked about this long before whatever the guy's name is, Spider-Man. But listen, to be a teacher, someone who instructs and communicates the truth, there's greater accountability. Greater potential for influence, greater potential for transformational. But increased influence brings increased responsibility. You know, there's a degree, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that's still true, but I guess it is. There's a degree of a respect and
1: dignity, a, a kind of prestige with being a teacher. Stand before a lot of
0: people, you you communicate uh, truths to a lot of people,
1: but you can also communicate a lot of error. Your influence can be so significant.
0: Now, I don't know, I I would assume, both online and here in the room, if I were sitting across the table and we were sharing a cup of coffee and and we'd get started, and I would ask you this question. Name the three most influential people in
1: your life. I'm almost certain that the majority of you, one of those three, was a teacher. One or two of you are shaking the rest of you are playing living
0: statues, so I don't know whether you agree or not. But in my life, the three people I would let two of those three were teachers. The influence those two men had in my life were profound. They were teachers. As I, as, I, as I was in their class, and I, then I got to know them, and a lot of other things in, 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 in the circumstances of both situations, but their influence was profound in my life. Good teachers can have an immense impact on a, on a kid's life, an adult's life, <laughs> an older adult's life, for are going to say. But James is just saying something, because... Of all of the things you can think about, let's just use in the narrow era of ministry, of all the things you can think about ministry, one of the most important is teaching. Because we, we rely on teachers um, in the church now, it's all I'm talking about, we rely on teachers to communicate and instruct us in revealed truth. This book, the Bible, and, and all that's, that's a part of, of our faith and our tradition and our heritage, church history and all that. We rely on people, but the the assumption is, as we go into it, they're going to be teaching me the truth. And particularly for young believers, people who just come to know Christ, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. You're just giving them, and if you don't teach them correctly, you can lead them into error, heresy. That was one of the major challenges of the early church. There were so many people teaching And a lot of the stuff that was being taught wasn't right. And so they started to set up criteria. They started to set up certain standards, just like we do, for the most part. And so that's what James is talking about, because what is going to come out of your mouth are words. And the words that are going to come out of your mouth, you are accountable for those words, and God will hold you accountable for what you say. And so that's why he says, will be judged, the Greek word
1: there is Christus, will be judged with greater strictness. That's why, in my judgment, leaders are called to greater accountability before God, because their influence is greater. And history is,
0: you study history and church history now, you can study the history of the church, and it's, it's just, you just see it throughout the history of the church. People teaching error. And it leads
1: a whole group of people down a path of theological error. The genesis of heresy. And that's why it became so important for
0: the church to to agree upon what sound doctrine is and to have total agreement on that sound doctrine and teach it to the people. So James is saying, if you choose to be a teacher, which is an admirable choice, make sure you understand something. Greater influence necessitates greater accountability before God. And so that would have gotten the attention, I think, that would have gotten the attention of his readers. Because the Jewish, the the Jewish, well, let me put it this way. The practice of Judaism, Fred brought this up earlier, the practice of Judaism was the centrality of the synagogue. Because as a disbursement of the Jews occurred over their history with the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, the Greeks, the Romans, they're spread all over the place. So they developed the synagogue system. The synagogue isn't where you go to offer your sacrifices. The synagogue is where you were taught the law. So teachers, most of them were Levites, teachers were really important to Judaism. They got the title rabbi, rabboni, rabbi. The rabbi was the most important person in your life. The Orthodox Jew today in 2023, the most important person in the Orthodox Jew's life is their rabbi. They have a question. They don't ask their husband. They go to the rabbi. Rabbi, can I use my cell phone on the Sabbath? Most rabbis are going to come back. No, no. Because you pick up your cell phone and press the button, you're working. And on Shabbat, you don't work. So they turn their cell phones off. The Orthodox Jew it. Why? Because the rabbis tell them to do that. Rabbi, can I watch all creatures great on small on the Sabbath? Well, some rabbis will say, if you can develop a way in which you turn on your television set without working, I will allow you to work it. But... Watch it. But the rabbi down the street might say, no, because no matter what you do,
1: you're, you're energizing energy. You're, you're working in some way. So on Shabbat, you don't watch the Can I read the newspaper on the Sabbath? That's going to really be hard
0: because when you pick it up, when it's thrown on your porch and you pick it up and you open it, you're working. You see? But these are ludicrous, ridiculous ideas. But the teacher, the rabbi to the Jew, was the most important person in their life. So James is saying, in the New Covenant community, you want to be a teacher? Make sure you think through that choice. Because with greater influence
2: comes greater responsibility. Why did Moses run from God when God was after him and calling? him? He said, you, you, you don't want me. And, you know, he, he
0: came up with this, he said, he had five reasons why God was making a mistake. Well, I think he understood part, to some extent what God, I don't want to serve you, Lord, you know, particularly because I know what you're going to ask me to do. So.
1: Anyway, God said, but I will be with you. And that seemed to convince him.
0: All right, I've got to quit, guys. But we introduced this theme. So if you want to know what follows, come back next week. Everybody online with me? Yeah. All right, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray here and let you go because I need to go to my next well, The book of James is a convicting book. It stirs us uh, in ways that almost don't know the book of the New Testament does. And it's uh, extraordinary how it does get under our skin and convict us a little bit and helping to challenge us of what it really means to walk in loving obedience with you. We can't separate our faith and our works. Indeed, justifying faith produces a transformed life. James is beginning to help us understand what that looks like. That's why James is such an important epistle. And it needs to be read in conjunction with Paul, who explains what justifying faith looks like, You declared righteous, all the wonderful things that result from that. James is explaining what that life then looks like. Marvelous compliment. Thank you for these men whose interest in the Word of God, interest in studying and learning and applying the Word of God, is evidenced by coming to a class like this. Help them to take this seriously. Help them to allow the Holy Spirit to bring transformation in their life. Help them to desire to walk in loving obedience with you. Help them to understand we're all in process. We're all on the same journey. We're all being transformed into the image of Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, you don't deal with us only on the basis of your justice. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy, epitomized and exemplified in
1: sending Jesus. And it's in his name we pray all this. Amen. Amen. See you next week.